I want to begin with something that is rather unusual and maybe startling for some of you. It's a quote. And the quote is this. Faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. That was said by a guy named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is one of among a handful of what we could call zealous atheists, not simply content to be atheists themselves, but to call other people to turn their backs on God and to choose the same kind of God-less religion that they have. Dawkins wrote a book entitled The God Delusion. It sold over two million copies. Others like him, Christopher Hitchens, who wrote God is Not Great, and Sam Harris, who wrote the letter to a Christian nation, have also become bestsellers. As a matter of fact, some of you may have heard of Christopher Hitchens because he was quite an engaging person, a great personality, an atheist, but one who was a likable atheist, I guess you could say. Sadly, however, uh, just a few months ago, Hitchens passed away. And so I guess now the questions that he had about God have been answered for him. And I can only pray, and believe me, I don't say that with any amount of satisfaction. I can only pray that somehow, that somehow, the debates that he went on as he encountered believers who took a stand for their faith, even in the face of his acerbic wit, that somehow, before he left this earth, he came to a realization of the truth of what they were saying and embraced Jesus Christ as Savior himself. Now, I can't say that these fervent atheists have made atheism popular. It's hard for something like atheism, I think, to be popular. But they have given it a more public face. They've brought the concept of atheism to the forefront. And certainly there have been some fence straddlers, I guess, who really didn't have deep convictions one way or another, didn't have a connection to a church, who probably heard what they had to say, and it was said so well and so convincingly that they chose to abandon the pursuit of God, themselves a quest for God, and instead to accept a godless kind of life. But there has been no mass exodus from churches to embrace atheism. Having said that, having said that, many of our neighbors, co-workers, friends, and family members have perhaps accepted this premise that science has made God no longer necessary, that he's a nice addition, a trinket to put on a shelf but he's not essential to life. We've answered all the questions. We can do that in a naturalist kind of way. We no longer need God. And for those who have attended church, perhaps somewhat irregularly, and maybe more regularly, they cling to God not because it's out of deep personal conviction, but more so because it's out of tradition or convenience, or maybe because 
They just don't want to close that door just in case. But for all intents and purposes, they are practical atheists in that the reality of God has no, no real meaning in their lives. When we consider guys like Dawkins and, and Hitchens, these scholarly kinds of people, can such smart, educated, well-spoken, best-selling authors be wrong? Can leading astronomers, physicists, and other scientists, could they literally miss the mark? Is there no more room for God in this universe? Have we outgrown our need for him just as we outgrow our need for Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? Well, before we go away from this place bemoaning the death of God, let's keep in mind where people start. You see, scientists, those who don't accept God, begin with a premise. And that premise is, God's not there. Miracles don't happen. Everything can be explained naturally. Everything can be explained through the laws of physics. Given enough time, we can explain everything. For instance, the Big Bang Theory. It's all well and good to a point. You can look at it scientifically, you can look at scientific models, and you can say, okay, I can see how that could happen. Until you take it down to the point pre-bang. Just before the big bang. What is there then? Well, scientists don't know. They assume that somehow... Something came from nothing, but they can't explain it. Christians have a different perspective. God spoke and bang, it happened. We began at a different point. Godless science begins at their point. Now, I want to say something here because not all scientists are godless. Not all intellectuals are godless. As a matter of fact, you will encounter some intellectuals through our GodQuest study that will help you to understand that you don't have to abandon your reason at the door to accept and follow Jesus Christ. There are biologists, there are scientists, there are doctors, there are lawyers, there are judges. There are people in the highest places of government, the highest places of science, the highest places of academia who embrace not only the existence of God, but who embrace Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord and have a biblical worldview. So this is not an indictment of science. It is not an indictment of intellectualism. What it is is an indictment of godless science and godless intellectualism. We're going to learn some things this morning, and you are going to be exposed to some things if you are going to be in the God Quest study this week, and I hope that you will be, that will help you to get a better understanding and appreciation because a lot of times, come on folks, 
When we encounter people who are super intellectual and are atheists or at least agnostics, do we really feel capable of going toe-to-toe with them? Somehow in the back of our minds, we've got it, that, that we've got it fixed that, that somehow what we have can't stand up to the scrutiny of science. Well, I want to get us started. I want to get us started in Psalm 19. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open there with me this morning. If you don't have your Bibles, let me encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. Even though I put the words up on the screen for your convenience, it's always good to have your Bible so that you can jot down a note, jot down a reference, circle a passage, underline something, and that's okay. You check out my Bibles and you will see that they are underlined, highlighted, circled. There are notes in the... That, that's not... You're not disrespecting your Bible. In fact, I think a Bible that looks like that is one that a person has really thought about what God is trying to say. Now, I also want to say this. If you don't have a Bible, do not be embarrassed. Ask me for one, and I will be more than happy to provide you with one. We want God's Word to be in your hands. Now, sometimes it's a little difficult because you don't want to pull out your reading glasses, so I'd understand that. So if you just want to flip somewhere in there and look on the screen, that's okay, too. I'm getting to that point, and so. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's true and holy word this morning? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. God, would you please help us to understand and apply this word to our lives. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 19, what is it? It is a psalm of King David. It is an ancient Hebrew song that was written by the shepherd king that has been preserved, that has been repeated and enjoyed for 3,000 years. And we have it today. And it is still just as powerful in what it says. These verses declare profound truth. Truth that science cannot disprove. In fact, what I hope that you will come to as we conclude our time together this morning is that science does nothing to disprove it, but instead confirms and even magnifies the truths found in King David's words. Let's consider three truths this morning that we can draw from this. The first is, I can see signs of God's existence from creation. I can see signs of God's existence from creation. I want you to notice, again, how Psalm 19 begins. The heavens declare the glory of God. There is no preface to that statement. There is no preamble to that statement. Uh, David does not give background or introduction. He simply begins by stating, by singing, the heavens declare 
the glory of God. Here he is not trying to establish the existence of God. He does not argue for the existence of God. He does not go about the task of convincing anyone. For David, the existence of God is self-evident. The existence of God is self-evident. He would say to you, look up at the stars in the sky, the way they are stretched across the canopy of space. That is a clear evidence of the existence of God. And David would have thought it sheer folly that a man or a woman could look at the beauty of creation and not see the handiwork of God. To David, to David, the constellations across the heavens were God's signature on his masterpiece. They were the evidence that we can look up and look around and see. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, begins with these words. In the beginning, God. Again, there is no preamble. There is no argument, no preface. Just the statement, in the beginning, God. You said, you remember I said that those who are atheists begin with a premise that there is no God. Those who are believers begin with the premise that there is. And presuming that God exists is not a sign of ignorance. It is an acceptance of revelation. It is acknowledgement of a self-evident truth. It's just that we and atheists begin at a different point. The atheists begin here. There is no God. There are no miracles. There is nothing supernatural. It is all explainable by the laws of physics. We who are believers, we begin here. And we say there is a God and he has shown himself in his creation. And we accept that as our starting point. And if there is a God, then there is supernatural. There are things that we cannot see. There are things that we cannot prove scientifically. There are miracles that take place. And in this very room are the miracles of God. The things that God has done in your life and in the lives of your friends and in the lives of your family members that are unexplainable. By science. We begin at a different place. Paul, the great church planner, would later write, What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, I can see the signs of God's existence and that which he has created. And so can you and so can anyone who is willing to see that a person can look at the night sky or at the ocean waves or at the mountain's heights and not see the signs of God's existence is not an indictment on God. 
that he has not done enough to reveal himself. It is an indictment on that person who sees what who sees creation, who sees the mountains, who sees the stars, who sees the ocean waves, and still says there is no God. Christians are being criticized for being small-minded. But I ask you, what is small-minded about embracing an almighty God who is able to create something as massive and ever-expanding as the universe out of teeny tiny atoms. Is there anything small-minded about embracing a God like that? The second truth that we can draw from this passage today is this. I can see signs of God's intelligence in creation. When Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The word glory we often think about as, as, as beauty or, or majesty. But it also speaks of God's wisdom. His knowledge, his intelligence, his skill, his attention to detail, his mathematical, scientific, and architectural precision. All of which can be seen in creation itself. And when we see it, it should cause us a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of worship, and should call us to faith. In the GodQuest DVD curriculum, which many of us are exploring together in small groups, we will encounter this week journalist and now pastor Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel will tell us of how science first led him away from God, but then as he investigated it more carefully, as he saw the complexity of creation, well, he had a change of heart. You don't have to wait for your group to see it. I'd like to give you a little taste of it right now. I could take you back to the exact place where I lost whatever remnants of faith I had in God. I was a freshman biology student at Prospect High School in Mount Prospect, Illinois, in the third floor classroom, sitting in the second row from the window, third seat from the back. And the reason I remember that so clearly is because I was so impressed by the science experiment that the teacher was explaining to us that day. It seems that in 1953, there had been a graduate student at the University of Chicago named Stanley Miller. He had tried to demonstrate that life could have arisen naturalistically without any need for a creator. And so to show that, he created a flask, and he filled it with what he thought was the atmosphere of the early Earth. And he shot electricity through it in order to simulate lightning. And at the end of this experiment, he found a brown-reddish goo in the flask. And when he analyzed it, he realized these were amino acids. And amino acids are the building blocks of life. So I'm sitting there as a young student, and I draw the conclusion, well, wait a minute. God's out of a job. I mean, if you can show that life came about without any need for a creator, then there is no God. And that's the first day I began to call myself an atheist. And consequently, being an atheist, I had no accountability to God. And I felt like I could kind of make up my morality as I went through life. And so I lived a very immoral and drunken and narcissistic lifestyle for many years. Now, later I discovered that that experiment was not valid. 
that the atmosphere Stanley Miller had used was not the, re- the right atmosphere of the early Earth, and that when you use the correct atmosphere, you do not get the same results. Besides which, amino acids are a far cry from life itself. I mean, that's like saying I have a brick, therefore I can explain a skyscraper. Well, after I learned that, well, wait a minute, that experiment did not disprove the existence of God, and I did other investigation, I found that, wait a minute, there is good scientific evidence that God exists. There is good evidence that Jesus is his son. Well, after I received Christ, my life began to change, and my values, my character, my morality, my attitudes, my priorities, my relationships, all of these things began to change over time for the good. Some people believe that modern science has shattered all possibility of faith in God existing anymore. The God that created this universe, but nothing could be further from the truth. Modern science has actually given us more reasons to believe in David's words in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. You see, that phrase could literally be translated, the heavens number out the glory of God of a strong God. Whether we look from a distance as when we walk outside and look up on a cloudless night or when we scan some of the the incredible images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, you may think that I'm just a, a, a redneck preacher from North Carolina and for the most part, he's probably right. But I enjoy reading scientific articles, Scientific American and things like that. I enjoy uh, looking at the images of space and the vastness of it and and how we can plumb the depths of space. And that's fascinating to me. I, I love to do that. But never, not once, have I looked at that and not seen the fingerprints of God. I'm blown away with what my Creator has made. I am blown away that His, the Bible says that His ways aren't our ways and His thoughts aren't our thoughts, and I'm so glad. Because if God's thoughts were my thoughts, I couldn't have thought up anything more than Plato. Tinker toys. And yet God has created everything from vast expanding nebula to the strands of DNA that make us up and make us different. It is God's signature. The heavens number out the glory of God. As you are in your God Quest small group this week, Sean McDowell is going to say this. The conditions of the universe are fine-tuned for the emergence and the sustenance of human life. Just about everything, the basic structure of the universe is balanced on a razor's edge for life to exist. The universe is so exquisitely calibrated that the great scientist Sir Frederick Hoyle suggested a super intellect had monkeyed with physics. And it's true. The location of our earth, its rotation, its angle, everything is perfectly designed to fit us.
this morning, the former Aaron Demarest, Aaron Land, now, brought in that precious little baby. Do you know that God created this world so that that precious little baby could not only survive but thrive? That leads us to our third truth, and that is this. I can see the signs of God's care in creation. The same David who wrote, The Heavens Declare the Glory of God, wrote something that we sang about a little earlier in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds, all the beasts of the field and birds of the air and fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The songwriter marveled at the creation of God. He created numberless stars and yet... He created you and me and knows us. He oversees the path of the planets, and yet he knows your every step. He established his sovereignty over all, and yet he gives us dominion. The fact that the God who created the universe out of nothing, simply by the power of his command, knows each of us intimately, shows the extent of his care for us. Think about this. The God who created the constellations, who plumbed the depths of the seas, who invented oxygen and molecules and DNA, not only sees you, not only notices you, not only cares for you, but he went to great lengths so that you can know his care for you. God went a long way in order for you to know not only that he's there, but that he cares. He created this little blue ball circling the sun, and then he lowered himself He humbled himself to come to us in human form, to live as a man and to die as a criminal so that one day you could come to know his great love for you and that you could have a chance to respond with gratitude and perhaps even with a prayer of repentance and salvation. If you're here this morning and for you, God is 
a trinket. A part of life, but not central to it. You believe he exists, but you're not so sure he believes you exist. You can see his handiwork, but you don't know his care. You don't know he cares at all. I'm here to tell you that this great God who created this expansive universe has such a love for you that he sent his son to die on a cross to pay the price for your sins. There's probably no one here that I have to convince that they have sin in their lives. You know that. And you know that that sin is something that not only breaks the laws of God, but breaks the heart of God, breaks the relationship that God wants to have with us. But perhaps what you've heard this morning is that this great God who loved us so much and sent his son to die for us wants to establish that relationship not by our effort, not by our earning it, not by our being good enough, but merely by grace. That God has this great gift of salvation that he would extend to you because he loves you. He knows you and he loves you anyway. And perhaps today, you need to acknowledge that truth. To admit your sin. And to receive God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior. If you're here this morning with a sincere heart to know this great God intimately, and you need to accept His Son as your Savior, then I'd like to lead you in a very simple prayer that you can pray silently. Would you close your eyes, bow your heads. If you're already a believer and you're secure in that belief, then you pray for someone who you know that needs Jesus. And if you need him yourself, then would you pray these words with me? Lord God, thank you for taking notice of me. Out of all the wonderful things you've created, Lord, I confess I'm a sinner, just like everyone else. Today I turn away from my sin. I invite you into my heart and my life. I accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as full payment for all the wrong things I've done. And I turn my life over to your control. I ask you to come into my heart to take charge of my life from now on. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.